Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and I'm going to be your host today. I'm going to be speaking with Professor Craig Heatherington, who is Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Concordia University, about his new book, The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops, which came out with Duke University Press just a few weeks ago in 2020. This book dives into the global soy industry, agricultural politics, economic inequality, and expert knowledge in rural Paraguay. It's written in a clear, engaging prose and weaves fresh insights on urgent topics like bureaucracy and biopolitics into stories about how soy governs and is governed in rural Paraguay. This book will be an essential read for all interested in Latin America, state power, neoliberal agriculture, anthropology, the Anthropocene, and the pressing question of how conflicts over mundane, everyday forms of violence undergird eventful horrors like massacres, regime changes, and the unmaking of people's power. Here's my interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Professor Heatherington, to New Books in Anthropology. We're so glad to have you. Thank you very much for having me. So our first question to you is um, about your academic, intellectual, political trajectory and background. Um, what led you to become an anthropologist and an anthropologist of rural Paraguay at that? Well, I think I think it's two things. I think on the one hand, I... Um, I felt as a, as a, as a university student that anthropology was really where I found, um, the kinds of people who were asking the sorts of questions I was implicitly asking about the world, but didn't know how to work through myself. So the first time that I walked into an anthropology class and read some ethnography, it was really like just finding, finding a way of engaging with the world that felt, that felt right to me. That was, that, um, was, complex enough that respected the complexity of human relations in a way that I felt I, I, I was really seeking for. So, so I think ever since then, anthropology for me, and particularly ethnographic form, this kind of long form research that then goes into very complex writing about that research, I think is, uh, is what has really, uh, what has really motivated me, me throughout. Um, I also, uh, before going to university was I traveled a lot and I was really interested in farming and uh, a variety of things like that that just through a series of coincidences landed me in the middle of South America at a particular point and so and when I when I started to try to find out where I was going to uh, carry out these studies I had I had already forged some relationships there and this is that's that's what set me on this path. Great, thank you. Um, so to begin talking about this book, um, I think the first thing that leapt out at me as a reader was the cover of the book. Um, it's just this startling image of police um, dressed in riot gear, and there aren't any other people that you can see. Um, and then there's a field of soy. Um, and in the book, you discuss this as, you know, police protecting the soy against people. Um, and I think this is a very evocative um, first image uh, with which you could, um, or one could start understanding the conflict that's been unfolding around soy in Paraguay. Um, so could you speak a bit more about just the very general backdrop um, of this book? So what is soy? You know, what's the soy industry? Um, who's growing it? Um, and what's the conflict that's been simmering around it? Yeah, so so the the soy the the story of soy in South America in general, but in Paraguay in particular, is that in the in the nineteen seventies, due to a whole bunch of strange global market uh, phenomena, um, the market for soy became very big and became focused. The production of it became focused in um, in Brazil and then afterwards in in Argentina and and Paraguay, um, and. It's the kind of crop that people don't really pay much attention to. This isn't a crop that's going to uh, creating tofu and stuff. It's mostly going to feeding animals and to industrial inputs of, of a variety of sorts. Um, but it's it's one of those commodities that can be grown at very, very large scales um, that at those scales requires uh, a lot of uh, capital inputs, including pesticides and machinery, um, and therefore kind of... Uh, takes a lot of land as well as it goes. And so 
over since the 70s, it has kind of been increasing in its presence in Paraguay. And through the 1990s and into the 2000s, there really there was this big boom that opened up, which basically meant that a lot of people were getting quite rich, uh, growing soybeans in Paraguay as they were in neighboring countries, um, taking more and more land as they went, using more and more intensive chemical practices on their fields. Um, certainly adding to the economy in a, in a major way, uh, but also creating new kinds of inequality, new kinds of environmental problems um, as a result of it. And so, so throughout the throughout really the late '90s, around 2000, you started having this backlash against um, soy growing as a as a practice and all the kinds of things that came with that. Yeah. So this this situation eventually led to. Um, uh, these kinds of confrontations that through, you know, from 2004 to 2014 or so became increasingly common, um, sometimes disastrous, sometimes deadly uh, confrontations between rural protesters and police, uh, sometimes as in the picture of this that uh, covers the, the book, um, these almost absurd confrontations where you, where you had police that seemed to be guarding legumes against uh, human protesters. Right. Um, and one of the things that, you know, the book really spends a lot of time grappling with is how the conflict around soy oscillates between, um, you know, um, slow forms of violence, basically, um, everyday forms of violence, which don't really come to a head. And then moments where the violence becomes really explicit and embodied and eventful. Um, and one of the moments that that, that happens is um, the death of an 11-year-old child, um, which you discuss in the second chapter, and how um, that moment becomes this kind of eventful um, base upon which an anti-soy uprising could happen. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about, um, I guess, the slow and then this kind of eventful forms of violence, um, and in particular about this case? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that the slow, the slow is is the the part that had been there for a long time so slow violence in the sense that that Rob Nixon talks about it is that kind of in, those environmental changes that creep up slowly on marginalized populations that are that are absolutely uh, devastating to their lives but that are sometimes hard to point to exactly um, things like increasing toxicity um, in in Paraguay around soy one of the things that was that's that was most striking at the time in particular was people talked about the smell of these fields so there was you know this had to do with this with pesticides being used increasingly you know and as the crop expanded you had more pests and therefore you had more chemicals being used and the the smells of these of the spring would go from this kind of sweet saccharine smell of roundup that was kind of ever present to sometimes this smell that was like a decaying corpse that people would use uh, um, of 2,4-D and some other um, cocktails that people were spraying on this. And it was hard to say that, you know, this is exactly violence, except people would, would it would make it very difficult to have a pleasant afternoon on your porch. You know, it starts with those kinds of things. And then slowly those, uh, those instances of bad smells being around start getting associated with uh, various kinds of ailments. So whether it's rashes or headaches or uh, vomiting and these things that, that started happening to people that got associated with soy in a variety of different ways made, made it very difficult to, uh, to, to feel good in these places where people were living. So that's, that's one kind of slow violence that was happening. The other kind of slow violence that was happening was this creeping inequality that happened as certain people took control of the soy economy and started becoming rich on farming in a way that was completely unprecedented in Paraguay. And other folks were shut out of it for a variety of reasons that I can get into. Um, we're, we're shut out of it, but we're still living around the soy fields. So you had these very large, chemically intensive soy fields with small, uh, you know, hamlets, um, disintegrating hamlets, kind of around the soy fields where people were exposed to these toxins, um, who were getting poorer, whose access to markets were getting worse. You know, the roads would be taken over by the soy trucks. Um, the water systems would be destroyed by the soy trucks. All these little things would just make it harder and harder uh, for people to, to make a go of it. And so that was happening. It had been happening for a few years at this moment in early 2003, 
when uh, this boy, uh, Silvino Talavera, who was on sort of the extreme edge of the of the soy frontier at that point, um, was sprayed by his neighbor. So the neighbor passed straight over him with a sprayer, and um, and he was he was doused from head to foot, and this started a series of uh, of uh, kind of health crises that ended with him dying um, about a week later, and uh, and that. That really, that particular event really catalyzed a movement. Um, it brought international attention. It brought uh, lawyers from the capital city. It brought a couple of um, fairly well-organized uh, peasant social movements to the case. Uh, they brought it to court. They were able to get, you know, with with a lot of complexity. There was a there was a a, a ruling in their favor, and and that kind of that that catalyzed, like I said, this this argument um, in Paraguay that soy was bad and made it made it possible to point to this thing. People started using the slogan "La soja mata," soy kills, um, as a result of this. And then you could start with that with that kind of scaffolding that historical event. You could say actually, there's all these other things going on that um, there's all these other people dying that are dying in maybe less direct ways, sometimes just as direct. Um, and so from two 2003 onwards, you have this very, very uh, vocal opposition in the country uh, to soybeans. Soybeans become sort of this this villain on the on the landscape, um, and that helps to precipitate the other kind of main event that uh, of of the beginning of the book, at any rate, which is the election um, in 2008 of. Uh, leftist social movements to the presidency of the of the country, which was a completely unprecedented, um, unprecedented historical election in 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 Paraguay, um, and set up the possibility of people trying to be able to actually do something about it. So he used the tools of the state to control what they saw as the problems that surrounded the production of soybeans. Right, and I think in some ways, what's so interesting about this book is that. It's um, an assessment, um, an ethnography of the pink tide, um, but done through, you know, monocropping and done through soy. Um, and actually, that's that's where the title of the book seems to come from, The Government of Beans. Um, and you discuss that at some length in the beginning of the book and then in the middle chapters where you actually show the operations of this government of beans. Um, so let's start there in terms of um, after this election, um, what is the government of beans that is put into place? Um, what happens, you know, when a leftist social movement comes to power and um, takes on the mandate of regulating um, agribusiness? Like, how does that play out? So, I mean, to anticipate, and the, the book is very much structured about anticipation of how badly everything plays out. So, so <laughs> we'll we'll get there first. Um, but I I did want to say that uh, you know, there there are these complexities to how this this government came to power that are that are important to know. So Paraguay um, had been in two thousand and eight had been ruled by a single party for sixty one straight years, and most of that had been um, a single dictator. And so so the idea that elections change anything in Paraguay had long been sort of in this long lost hope of, uh, of, of progressives, of people from other conservative parties as well who sort of formed the opposition. Um, but the idea that in 2008 you could suddenly have the emergence of a new political figure who would win an election like this was very, very hard to uh, anticipate. Now this... When you mentioned the Pink Tide, so the Pink Tide refers to this kind of movement in the region where a lot of governments went from these uh, hard right neoliberal deregulatory um, regimes to nominally socialist regimes, sometimes very uh, a very large swing in ideology uh, in, in governments. So this is Paraguay's version of it, and it was a very it was kind of a tepid version. Uh, it was not a it was not a socialist party that came to par- to power. It was a bunch of these uh, social movements that who happened to find a perfect figurehead in this guy named Fernando Lugo, who had been a rural bishop, uh, liberation theology um, bishop, who uh, managed to kind of leave the church and lead this movement to take over the presidency. Um, so it was always going to be a fraught affair. It was always going to be particularly embattled uh, for them to be uh, in power for any length of time. Um, and 
in part because there wasn't this party structure behind it, what uh, the 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 new president did was to institute people from these different movements that had supported him in different parts of the government. And that led to, it's very difficult to kind of characterize this government overall. Um, but one of the things that he did that was most controversial, perhaps most radical, um, was to install some uh, fairly well-known environmentalists in a couple of key agencies uh, in, in, in government. And one of these was this agency called Senave, which is the uh, basically the, the National Plant Health Service, um, that's the, the literal translation of the name, um, is the phytosanitary agency that regulates everything to do with um, the growing of crops, the, the spreading of pesticides, uh, the importation of organic materials, this, these kinds of things that have to do with the health of agriculture that most people don't pay much attention to, but that actually become quite consequential if um, there's a lot of social movements wanting to change pesticide regulations, for example. So, uh, so these people end up in these these positions of regulatory power rather than political power. They're in these in these kind of regulatory offices, and they nominally have the ability in those places to change the way uh, people regulate um, how something like soybeans are grown. So, so you know, one example would be uh, up until that point. Uh, a great deal of the pesticides used in Paraguay um, were completely unregulated. So they were they were black market pesticides. There were rules about how one was supposed to use them, but they weren't being inspected in any serious kind of way. Um, and so they could now go out into uh, the fields and into the warehouses and into the you know, crop duster hangers and look at who was using what kinds of chemicals, um, apply nominal fines to these things. These are the kinds of tools that they had um, at their disposal. Um, what they quickly found, which is you know, sort, of, sort of predictable, but it's, it's always interesting to see how this plays out, is that on the one hand, there was huge opposition within their own um, bureaucracy. So a lot of people who are holdovers from the previous regime, I mean, 90% of people are holdovers from the previous regime who are used to a particular way of doing things. You try to move that in a different direction and you get opposition from all of your, all the people working with you who you depend on. Uh, you get these kinds of conspiracies in the hallways and people dragging their feet and it becomes very, very difficult to move the apparatus of government in, in this particular direction. On the other hand, you you encounter this, uh, or, or they encountered a very rapid, very vocal political backlash in the press um, and with the soy lobby that is very, very strong in Paraguay um, uh, against all of these folks. So they had to kind of deal with that. And then they had to deal with the fact that the tools themselves were fairly weak tools. They had a fleet of pickup trucks. They had a bunch of people with badges. Um, they could go out into these farms, um, but, uh, but how much they could actually do in any particular one of these encounters, even when they managed to make them happen with the very small resources they had, uh, was, was always kind of up for question. So there are a number of episodes in the book where you, you see these, these encounters and what they look like, and they're all different, but they all kind of they they all point to uh the, the the difficulty in harnessing these relatively weak tools in relationship to this this tide of soybeans and all of the capital and political power that uh, that comes with it um that was really helpful thank you and i think we should also kind of go into some of the more specific details of the tools because i think um it's it's really striking the kinds of things which become the center of political um, agitation. Um, so, for example, in um, in you know trying to regulate soy, one of the things that you mentioned is attempted is to say that um, soy farmers cannot or should not spray the outer edges of their field in order to avoid spraying um, people or um, areas which are not their property. Um, or that there should be this erection of um, barriers um, of tall grasses so that um, that would contain um, the, you know, spraying within the farmer's property. And yet there's a huge backlash to this from um, the soy lobby, um, what you call the soy state. Um, why? This seems like such a small and mundane thing, right? So how does that come to 
how does it come to um, be the center of a heated um, battle? Yeah, so so these 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 living barriers, as they're called in Paraguay, um, uh, are are central characters in the book. Um, there are a number of others of these sorts of regulatory tools that have similar trajectories, but the living barriers are particularly evocative, and they were they were very um, uh, difficult um, to implement at the time. So so the the idea is simply, as you said, you you plant these tall grasses on the edges, and they're that way, if you're spraying, there's less chance that your spray is going to drift or at worst that the nozzle of your sprayer is going to go onto the road and, and spray somebody, right? Um, seems like a bit of a no-brainer and uh, uh, not particularly expensive uh, thing to do. And also something that really doesn't, it, it doesn't touch at the heart of the model of the of, of growing itself, right? And so, mm-hmm. So one of the tensions that I had as a researcher is I went in, you know, with all these radicals and I'm like, yeah, we're going to get everyone to plant barriers. And I, all I could think was, wow, what a, what a minor thing to do. Um, why, why is this going to be such an important thing? But, you know, there were, there were marches for barriers. I saw people making protests about barriers. There was, it became this really big thing and, and the backlash was uh, equivalent or greater. So the idea that, that mandating a barrier like this was going, was, was some total imposition on people's uh, private property for one, because it meant that you had to use your property for a thing that protected others rather than use your property for making, um, for making money for yourself um, became this, this, this absolute flashpoint all the time. I, I also think that there was a way in which, you know, the visibility of these barriers um, was was very symbolically powerful for people. Uh, so so it it really kind of every time you ran into them after a little while, because some people did plant them, some people were happy to plant them, some people thought they were good ideas, um, but when once they became politicized in this way, they became sort of symbols of the the difficulty and the divide that was existing in the in the campo. And also, implicitly, they were they, the, the the barriers themselves symbolized a criticism of soybeans. And so they became they became too laden and too fraught to be able to simply say this is a simple solution to at least an element of the problem um, uh, that's emerging. But I would say this. This happened kind of repeatedly. There was the there were the barriers. There were um, simply inspectors showing up um, to to do these things. There were people taking water samples. That was a really a really big thing. Just just the idea that anybody would deign to take samples of water to see if there were pesticide traces in them always required this huge mobilization of resources. And even then, it usually went wrong. Someone would find a way to screw up the the sample. Someone would lose the sample. Um, everything would would just kind of disintegrate around the edges. And so, so again, these these incredibly tepid attempts to mobilize these very um, the, these very small and, uh, and, and sort of common sense, uh, regulatory things, even that was, was very hard to accomplish. Right. And then those are, um, of course, regulatory tools, which are, um, I guess in some sense, pretty universal, um, in that those kinds of regulations exist in many different places, um, not just in Paraguay. And it's not something that's um, you know, being innovated for the spe- specific context or something like that. Um, whereas there's other tools which become, um, it seems like, become much more um, locally charged um, in ways which wouldn't really be translatable. So one of those things is um, the citizen participation aspect of soy regulation, um, and specifically that taking place through denuncias. Um, so citizens basically registering complaints against local soy farmers and then that triggering um, some kind of an inspection or investigation. Um, and you talk about this as um, the effort to you know, make the state present um, in places where people see the state as being absent um, and also the effort to kind of create citizens who have regulatory ways of thinking. Um, is that something that um, you know, addressed the kind of difficulties of um, implementing regulation and kind of how did that play out? Yeah, absolutely. So so I think one of the funny things about 
these citizen participation units, so these are set up actually by the phytosanitary control agency as ways to get people to complain um, more vociferously. And one of the things I, I liked about that um, that model, I like to think with it, was that in some ways it's the it's the reverse of how we often think of environmental struggles as happening, where you'll have people who are exposed to, exposed to toxins who will organize themselves in a neighborhood committee or something and eventually find a way to convince some bureaucrat or some politician to support them in what they're doing. And then that becomes an example of, of regulation. So it's not that citizens aren't involved in this. The state generally doesn't respond well to these things unless there's a citizen group. But um, but here, what we had in Paraguay was in some ways the a kind of retrofitting project where it was the bureaucrats who were seeking out these uh, these citizen groups and trying to make them more robust in order to help them uh, do their job. And this is partially, again, just knowing how few resources they, they had, how well organized the opposition was. Um, they knew there were these social movements that, that were out there. So the, the trick was for them to try to go out and try to, um, try to make these ties with, uh, with local committees in order to, um, to, to use those kinds of complaints that were kind of nascent about uh, slow violence and turn them into something that could actually be regulated. Um, and what that what that meant? I mean, I think it was it was uh, it was a really interesting attempt. Um, I'd also say it's not unique. Uh, there are there are examples of um, people using uh, the health uh, system in this way throughout Latin America and, and and so on. But what made this really interesting was that it also started to look an awful lot like a kind of political organizing that um, that in in a sense the whole movement was opposed to so so the way the way the dictatorship and the the single party rule worked in Paraguay for a long time was precisely through having people become members of the party create local committees local committees of control and surveillance of the communities um, that would uh, report back to this centralized government uh, whenever someone was falling out of line with the with the the Colorado party was the, the the name of the party. Um, so, so now that you had these kinds of leftist social movements doing sort of a, an, an analogous or structurally similar practice, which is going into these communities and trying to organize committees of folks who are opposed to the overuse of pesticides and, and meeting them and then telling those people to report and complain about their neighbors who were using the pesticides and putting the community at risk. Um, made them very open and I'm, and I should say, I'm, I don't, I don't really see another way that they could have done this, but um, it made them very open to the criticism that all they were doing was trying to build a political party in the countryside and trying to sort of set up traditional clientelist networks um, in this way. And so, uh, so that became one of the flashpoints and tensions within, within this movement. And, and I should also say that, you know, there were there were all kinds of competing interests within uh, within the Lugo's supporters uh, even at that. So so once once these structures started to be implemented, there was also these frictions from within of people trying to figure out well who's trying to build structures in whose interests um, are they actually just following the old playbook of you know patron client relationships in these areas? Are they trying to build a a base of political support? Are they just collecting bribes? Um, and the, the constant suspicion that that might be going on um, made it uh, made the whole situation even more fraught and tense from the beginning and made it such that when the soy lobby and when uh, the Colorado party came back in force against them, uh, they were the they were not as well organized as they probably needed to be in order to confront that situation. Mm. Um, but there was also, um, so in, so in addition to kind of these, um, unexpected, I guess, um, or like unforeseen, um, leaks, you know, in the government of beans, which, which didn't, or maybe they were not as unexpected, but which, which didn't wor work out as planned. Um, there's a really interesting, um, part in the book where you discuss, 
um, I guess, unforeseen sources of power for um, campesinos and for the anti-soy um, mobilizers. And one of them is um, when inspectors are going around surveying and measuring um, soy farms um, as part of the inspection, that turns into this performance of campesino sovereignty, you call it. Um, um, and that taps into this longer history of land reform, um, which um, gives surveying land a certain meaning um, in the countryside. Um, usually when we read about surveys as anthropologists, you know, it's this colonial thing which comes from up above and, um, you know, is, is this like violent uh, way of disrupting um, other forms of land tenure and property relations. And yet what you describe is quite different. So um, I wonder if you could discuss that a bit more about how, yeah, how people accompanying inspectors to um, measuring and surveying activities um, basically became, I guess, a subterranean um, expression of something like class antagonism. Yeah, um, that's that's a great way of putting the question. Thanks. Um, I think that so one of the one of the the methods behind this book uh, that happens throughout is is that every time one of these new situations emerges, what it does is it it kind of brings uh, bag past baggage into the present in unexpected ways, sometimes very, very deep past stuff. So there's a lot of tacking back and forth between these kinds of these local, but also uh, global histories and what happens in the present. And this is, this was a very uh, key uh, part of that happening for the Campesino movement. So, you know, initially part of the question that I had about that, that, brought this book about was how to understand the role of beans or the 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 interest in the bean itself in a political situation that has for decades understood the struggle as being about land so not about plants not about pesticides uh, not even about capital but just about land itself um, and so that's for decades now people have been fighting over who has more land than who in paraguay um, and and rightfully so it's got one of the most unequal land tenures in the world um, and the soybeans in many ways, one way to understand what the problem was, was that it, it had reversed a, a very, very hard fought, but very tenuous, um, project of land reform, whereby people were able to get access to land by proving that the large landholders illegitimately held their land. And so there were a variety of ways to do this, this is kind of, uh, the subject of my previous book. There were a variety of ways of doing this. Um, and one of them was simply to ask, you know, to, to denounce to the, to the land reform agency that your neighbor had too much land and to ask that they be surveyed. And these were often very big, uh, you know, took years of mobilizing to make this happen. And the surveyor would show up one day and everyone would follow um, him around. It was always a him in the, at the time um, and, and plant the stakes and measure things and see if the big landowner had too much land, at which point they would take a piece of it away and give it to um, local landless families. Uh, that almost never worked, but it was actually kind of part of the repertoire of, of, um, of land struggle in the area was this these kinds of demands made on the state uh, for surveying. And with soybeans, that continued in parallel. And this whole question of who's measuring whose land and how is, is still an underlying tension throughout. But one of the things that the government of beans did was it shifted that um, that politics of measurement that measurement as a as an expression of one's control over territory, it shifted into other, kinds of uh, other sorts of measurements. So, so for example, the sampling of water, um, deciding whether uh, water is contaminated or not. If you could ask bureaucrats to sample the water in some place in order to show that the local soy farmer was um, not obeying regulations, that could be a sign of um, a, a sign of kind of a nascent uh, campesino political movement um, in, in that area. And the very fact that the barreras vivas, these uh, these living barriers that we talked about before, 
um, required people to to stake the land to say so the the barreras had to be uh, five meters wide so that meant someone would unroll a measuring tape of five meters from the road um, those kinds of actions were always laden with this this implicit sense that um, people would be uh, that that part of uh, that part of local peasant power was about demanding measurement. Um, so that was, that was, uh, one, one really big part of it. Now, the other thing that, that this, that happened, and this is related a little bit to the previous clientelism point is that a lot of the inspections ended up having local community leaders, um, attached to them. So on several inspections I went with, we would bring, um, local activists along with us and that served a whole bunch of functions on the one hand the roads are really hard to get around so if someone tells you to go measure something it's easier to have them in the truck to tell you where to go uh that's one thing uh the other thing is that uh that it helps to show the community that you're actually carrying out the thing you promised to do so you're actually going and doing the measurement and you're not just getting a bribe from the from the the farmer to bugger off um, but then it was serving this this parallel purpose, which was these local activists asserting themselves and being able to go onto people's property and and just be present and kind of get in people's faces. Um, and that, uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, was was this pretty impressive expression of local campesino power in, in these places of radical inequality. Um, in another way, it, it kind of exacerbated all these tensions that made it really difficult for the inspectors, some of whom were not, you know, were, were sort of middle of the road people who just wanted to inspect and, and make the regulations happen. Um, uh, it, it made it really difficult for them to carry out their work in, in any kind of way. So again, some of these episodes in the book where we had guns drawn on us as inspectors um, and where the whole, the whole, uh, tenor of those encounters was colored by the fact that we had a particular person in the car that we didn't know particularly well, but we knew that they were a local influential activist. Um, that would really, that would really send things off in a, in a particular direction. Um, again, I, uh, that's not a critique of the, of the practice, but it is part of what explains how, how inflamed these tensions, uh, got and just how, um, how brutally they unraveled at the end. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for um, going into that. Um, and I think the next part of the book was really where the tensions explode. Um, I mean, after reading a chapter or chapters about land measurement and um, denuncias, the you would not expect that the next chapter would be about a massacre and a constitutional coup. Um, and yet that's, that's what happens. Um, so could you speak a bit to our listeners about, um, I guess, the ways in which um, the government of soy and its many limitations um, were somehow brewing um, in them or outside them, I guess, um, these kinds of very violent um, backlashes like that, that came after this. Yeah, so I think I think it's fair to say that this is a brewing on the outside. Well, maybe maybe inside outside isn't the way to think about it. Um, but uh, the whole so the whole time that Lugo was in power, this is four years. Um, there were rumors of coups uh, circulating constantly. I'm sure some of those rumors were true, um, and there were there was always this sort of fraught um, feeling that people could be thrown out at at any time. That the Colorado Party, along with the money provided by the soy lobby. And a couple of other interests um, was just it was it was too great for them to uh, to really be able to sustain. Mm. So so that that was always there as a as a possibility, and you would hear um, sometimes what sounded like totally paranoid versions of what must be going on in um, you know not only in the uh in the, the the back rooms of the politicians who were outside of power but among the bureaucrats who again made up you know 90 percent of the the state's workforce were folks who at some level um had loyalty to the power to the the colorado party um and to another opposition party uh as well and so there was always this possibility that the thing was a tinderbox and it could fall apart 
at any moment. And I think the fact that they got as far as 2012 was a surprise to many. Um, and I know, uh, I, I know that a, a lot of folks told me along the way, they're like, well, we're just going to continue to do this because who knows how long it's going to, how, how long it's going to last. So there was this sense of this, this kind of conspiratorial backdrop against which survival was always, um, unlikely political survival was always unlikely. Um, but then, then I think, that to to tell the story in that way is to tell the story as people do uh, uh, in capital cities where it's all about kind of political intrigue. And I think what became really clear to those folks in the way that it ended up is that those same tensions were being exacerbated in places where constitutional coups are not things you worry about. What you worry about is, uh, you know, a militia coming into your village and killing people. And and that is ultimately what ended up happening. So so we had this, this incident in 2012 where one of these long simmering land disputes, we're talking about decades of, of land dispute, um, between, on the one hand, uh, a relatively well-organized group of campesino occupants, so landless people who had taken a piece of land that they believed um, had been uh, been the property of a military base before, and who a large um, rancher believed was, uh, belonged to him. This is a sort of a classic land dispute situation where campesinos were saying this is state land and therefore it can be redistributed to us. And the rancher says, no, this is my land and I'm going to, I'm going to take it. But the two complexities that, that, that made this particularly fraught was that the rancher in question was one of the most highly placed uh, members of the Colorado party, uh, someone who had been a right-hand man of the dictator back in the eighties and who had accumulated this land at that time, but who also was now moving from ranching into soy farming and therefore going from a mode of production that is not so intensive, that involves leaving a lot of forest and so on to raising the forest and throwing soybeans on everything and starting to spray chemicals everywhere. And so, so those two things made this particularly fraught and eventually, and, and I go into a long description of various versions of what happened. It's hard to know who was motivated to do what exactly in this situation, but there was an eviction notice made for the squatters. It got completely botched. Um, and there was a firefight between the police and, um, and the campesinos who uh, that ended up with, um, with 17 people dead, six police officers and a bunch of, and a bunch of campesinos. And it just precipitated this huge crisis. It precipitated a crisis first in Lugo's coalition because it was someone, you know, it was, it was Lugo's security minister who had ordered the eviction. And so people turned on him immediately. And I'd say within hours, the apparatus that had already been established for um, carrying out a coup when that, uh, when the opportunity arose had jumped into gear. And so a week later, there was an impeachment vote and he was removed from office and all the, the whole state apparatus got flooded with these old cronies who just dismantled everything incredibly rapidly that had been set up by, um, by the government of beans itself. That's a very depressing end um, to <laughs> a story which was, I guess, anyway, punctuated by problems. Um, but I guess after, so after that whole section of the book closes, where we're focusing particularly on um, on Paraguay and um, on the government of beans itself, um, the last section of the book gets into something much broader Um I mean, of course, still rooted in government of beans in Paraguay, but um, it starts to discuss, or you start to discuss the blind spots of um, thinking with biopolitics, um, which which is, um, you know, a way of thinking that has um, really, I guess, exploded in anthropology and other disciplines. Um, and you say, you know, biopolitics problematizes um, the politicization of human health, um, but at the same time, it overlooks or maybe even implicitly celebrates um, the um, concomitant, um, you know, what you call agricultural techniques associated with fascism. Um, so basically the same ways of thinking and governing are, um, when applied to human life, um, questioned, and when applied to agrarian um, life or life of plants, 
um, given a free pass. Um, and you talk a lot about in the final section of the book about the problems of this um, and yeah, wh- where it kind of leads us astray um, and suggest that we should think about something like agrobiopolitics um, to really bring into view um, the connections between the agrarian and the human. Um, so could you talk a bit more about all of those things? Yeah, so so I think... You know, in in a way, the book the book is divided into three sections, and they're all motivated by slightly different questions, but also different moments in the research. And that's the first the first part is motivated by the question of how do beans become political, and the second is motivated by the question of how does anybody try to do anything about this using the state? Is that an appropriate way of going forward, or what does that look like? Then the third the third part of it. Um, was really reflections that happened kind of after the unraveling of the of the government of beans, where I started asking sort of what were some of the longer term structural um, uh, conditions of possibility for the emergence both of monocrops and of this idea that uh, centralized state regulation is a way to to deal with them, um, and and. To, to kind of root it in the ethnographic, the question emerged for me around simply trying to come to terms with what a phytosanitary agency was. This is a word that I learned in Paraguay. Um, you know, this and 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 learned that every state has one, has these these agencies that are responsible, uh, quite literally, for trying to picture what the health of the plants in a particular territory are, and then regulating them in order to uh, help them to thrive. And so. When I when I started to read more about the kind of history of where phytosanitary uh, governance comes from, I realized very quickly that uh, that not only does it look very analogous to the sorts of public health institutions that we're used to thinking about in a biopolitical frame, um, just with a different a different species at the center, a non-human one, um, but actually that that its history is also very very uh, similar and very tied to the history of the emergence of biopolitics. And so I was interested not only in the fact that this kind of biopolitical lens was a good way of trying to think with the regulation of plant life, um, but also as to why that hadn't been done very much before. Um, And uh, so I realized, you know, going back and rereading rereading my Foucault and the, the kind of classic works on biopolitics is there's always these mentions of agriculture as being kind of an a central part of biopolitical governance, especially early on, um, as people move into the city, uh, one of the big health problems they run into is famine, right? And so, so the state has to come in and regulate agriculture in order to uh, in order to regulate the health of the humans that are living in these uh, in these cities. And but then that kind of falls out of the frame, not never completely, but it it sort of fades away, and you get more interested in clinics, and you get more interested in in the spread of contagion, and in in the the um, and in sexuality and race, which become the sort of central uh, the central lenses of, of of biopolitics, and so. So at first it was just sort of a curiosity of saying, well, what if we tried to bring the plants back into this? Uh, what would what would happen? And and I, I name it agrobiopolitics just as a way of kind of flagging a conversation, which I which I wanted to have there. Um, and one of the things that that comes out of this, so so uh, in reading these histories in parallel, you realize that a lot of the institutions um, that are uh, that are created to regulate human health are created in parallel to regulate plant health, these kinds of border controls. This is one of the ways that people most uh, encounter phytosanitary agencies is they're the ones who are saying you can't bring, you know, oranges across the Canada-U.S. border, for example. Um, that's a phytosanitary decree that has to do about protecting the, the U.S. orange crop. Um, those sorts of measures start to appear in the uh, 19th century as uh, populations become more urbanized, as we uh, require food in order to uh, feed them, but also as therefore uh, crops start to expand that are more and more uniform and are therefore susceptible to more and more diseases, you have to have these um, these institutions that protect the crop in order to to, to protect the humans. 
And at the time that that's happening, people are thinking about these two things as related to each other. Um, and there, there, there's all this uh, work in the late 19th century in which the, the notion of a nation that has uh, powerful plants and powerful people in it is part of the same discussion. And that feeds very much the, 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 ter- the way in which this remains familiar is in fascist discourse about agriculture. So, um, so the idea that crop improvement was, was similar, analogous, and even connected to racial improvement um, was a big part of, uh, of European thinking about agriculture in the 30s um, and into the uh, early 40s. And, and there's a funny way in which uh, that because of, you know, because World War II and because there's this kind of taboo against certain forms of biological thinking that emerge after that, rightfully so, as a backlash to the, uh, to, to the Holocaust, people sort of forget that um, all, those, all those racial improvement strategies for humans are still going on in plants. And actually, they get weaponized after World War II in a very specific way, which is that a lot of the technology that goes into uh, creating weapons in World War II gets reinvested directly into agriculture. And a lot of the kind of genetic techniques um, that people that had been brewing in this uh, this awful fascist mix before become entirely about agricultural techniques. Um, and so that kind of... Um, uh, that moment, that moment is precisely what fuels what we call the Green Revolution, right? Which is this this moment of massive scientific investment in agriculture and in crop improvement that fuels the way agriculture is done from the 50s onwards uh, uh, around the world. Um, so, so what this section of the book allows me to do is to go back and to say, okay, um, the soy boom actually uh, has its roots in this, uh, this way of understanding uh, how governments ought to relate to plants, um, the backlash to the soy boom also has its roots in that particular way of understanding government and plants. How do we now unpack that and see what that, uh, what that relationship uh, gives us? And um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, among the you know many critiques that one reads of the Green Revolution, I think this has been the one of the most profound and um, you know hard hitting ones. So um, it's it was really important for me to read. So thank you, thank you for this whole section and um, this invitation to rethink biopolitics. Um, so I um, ask this question with the full. Um, caveat that I know that, you know, everyone's life has been turned upside down in recent months. Um, but um, uh, what comes after the government of beans for you? So what what are you working on next? What are you hoping to work on next? Um, and where does this kind of story go further? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I, I have a very specific uh, project that I'm working on now. And, and um, but I can, I can bridge it because it's very distinct from the government of beans. Um, I think what what really interested me about this this project um, was the idea the, the the beans project was the idea of trying to figure out how to represent um, a, a thing that was hard to represent as a thing, but also as a political force, and just to get into and embrace the complexity of that thing and try to uh, develop narratives that both showed the way that it affects local politics and local social relations in a classic anthropological sense, but also how it feeds into, through these agrobiopolitical relationships and through the Green Revolution, feeds into a particular global environmental mo- mo- moment that is um, that is kind of catastrophic, right? So I, I do think, and this is a central part of the book, um, the monocrop as a central figure in the Anthropocene, or a mon- the monocrop and the and and the the whole technique that comes with it as a central uh, driver of climate change, and as a part of the reason it's so difficult to think ourselves out of the kinds of governmental apparatuses we've gotten ourselves into in order to produce food in this way um, is sort of the backdrop of, of the whole way that the that the book unfolds. Um, and so the the 
the, the, the soybean or the monocrop as this kind of historical figure that's gotten us caught um, is, uh, is the, the sort of character that I wanted to explore um, the most. And at, as I was finishing up the project in Paraguay, you know, life life changed even before COVID. Um, uh, I've I've got much more teaching responsibility here, and I've got children that I don't want to abandon for many months at a time. I started what I thought was going to be a small project in Montreal around um, around uh, water infrastructure, um, with the idea that I would I wanted to try to think through um, how water in the city relates to how people are changing their perceptions of the environment in the context of climate change. Um, and so I, uh, I wanted water, you know, water in, in a way was my new beans. I knew it was going to be an extraordinarily complicated uh, kind of object. Um, and I just invited a whole bunch of students to, to come with me and to explore water in, in very different ways. You know, often it was just sort of on walks or meeting with local groups that were, that were complaining about the smell of sewage in their neighborhood, or at least these little things that have now developed into uh, a completely and totally unmanageable project about mm-hmm. kind of the history of how cities um, like Montreal, particularly Montreal, how how we sort of bake in a particular relationship to water through, um, it, you know, also public health in this particular case. One of the reasons we pipe water the way we do has to do with the outbreak of cholera in the 19th century all over the place. Um, these, these sorts of infrastructural inheritances that, that give us a kind of unseen and unspoken relationship to these complex actors in our environment that start to break down at a certain point. So in a, in a very sort of a very telling example is that Montreal has a sewage infrastructure that's, you know, in some parts over 100 years old. Those pipes were made at a particular diameter, um, and now with climate change, we're getting more rain, and so the diameter isn't quite large enough to deal with the amount of rain that we have. Um, and so you have water exploding out of the streets in different kinds of places. Well, actually changing the entire um, underground infrastructure of a city is virtually impossible, and you also can't just change little bits of the pipe as you go. Right? This is these are huge questions um, about how one how one deals with these things, and there are also opportunities for thinking about well, maybe piping water underground in this particular way isn't the best way of dealing with water. That the moment that we took all the water out of our cities and stuck it underground, it created all these other kinds of problems like heat islands and like lack of biodiversity, which we might want to rethink. But how do you start to rethink and how do you unpack those things and how do you do it with the tools at your disposal, which are these little social movements that are complaining about smells in their neighborhoods or um, these few activist bureaucrats who really would like to change something but are spending most of their day now on Zoom calls trying to you know, figure out how you run the construction season during COVID, right? All these kinds of things um, are actually very familiar. They're very, after the government of beans, they're very sort of familiar dynamics, um, even though they're occurring in a very different kind of place. I mean, not only in the global north, but this is an urban environment and we're talking about water as opposed to, as opposed to agriculture. Um, so I'm I'm at the beginning of this project. It's matured enough that I can see now I'm going to be stuck here for many years trying to sort my way out of it. Um, but uh, but that's, that, that is the project. We're calling it the Montreal Waterways Project for now, or sometimes we call it Emergent Waters. It's like, at what point do all these, these submerged conversations about water start to surface in people's consciousness? And, and I guess I should say one other part of that. Um, that discussion that I think um, comes out as the water comes out also is a whole new way of understanding uh, the, for, for people who hadn't thought about it before, uh, a whole way of understanding the colonial history of a city um, and a continent that was colonized by water that um, where the control of water became an important tool uh, for colonization. And so as you rethink the kind of natural relationships to water that come with rethinking the infrastructure, there are opportunities there for rethinking a lot of the social relationships and a lot of the, the sort of old um, colonial violences that come along with the water as well. 
Wow, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, that does sound like a very large and unmanageable project, and yet I am confident you'll manage it, um, given you know what I've read from you. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that develops, and um, really want to thank you for being on the show and explaining all these things, and you know for writing this book um, for for our listeners and readers. So thank you so much. Well, well, thank you. This was really really great experience. <laughs> 